Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This week is Parshas Vayikra, which is also Parshas Zohar. <clears throat> and um, I wanted to go through the rest of Hilchas Purim. Last week we discussed Mishlach Manus. And this week I want to begin with Tainus Esther and go through the other Halachas of Purim. On Tainus Esther, pregnant and nursing women do not have to fast, even if it's at the very beginning of pregnancy. If a person is sick enough to go to bed, then they don't have to fast, and not only do they don't have to fast, they shouldn't fast. Number three, the tainus begins at alois hashachar, begins at, at um, daybreak, alois. One can wake up before and eat, but they should have in mind to do so before going to sleep that they plan on waking up early. Men should not eat mezainus or hamaytzi unless they begin a half hour before alois. Women can, but definitely a coffee and something which is, you know, shahakal, hadama, ha'etz, etc., that's not a problem. If someone mistakenly ate during a tainus, they should nevertheless continue fasting for the duration of the day. And um, then ask Kishayla whether they have to make it up. That depends. On this fast day and on any fast day, one should not use mouthwash or brush their teeth. This is true for every fast. Now, if a person seriously suffers from not doing that, and that, that means like it's not just uncomfortable, but it really bothers a person and like bothers them throughout the day, they can brush their teeth, but when they rinse, they have to be very careful to use very little water and keep their head bowed down towards the sink so that like the water goes in and out. On Tainus Esther, the minig is to give machtis hashekel to tzedakah. Generally, the men take care of this. And the total amount that needs to be given is $1.50, three fifty cent coins. But you don't have to specifically get a hold of three half dollars. You can just give that value. Um, but often the most shuls have those three coins on the table, and the custom is you pick them up and you put them down. The main obligation is to give only for adults that are over 20, but it seems to be the prevalent minig that people give for all their children. And once a person starts giving machsa shekel for a child, they need to continue doing so, but you certainly don't need to do so for an unborn child. So what a person would do is that he would calculate you know, himself, his wife, how many children he has, and then give that amount times $1.50 to tzedakah. Meister money can't be used for machta shekel, and machta shekel, if you don't end up giving it during um, Tainus Esther, you can give it throughout Chaydesh Adar until Chaydesh Nisan. Megillah. So both men and women are equally obligated to hear the entire Megillah from beginning to end. We're also obligated to be mechanach our children in Megillah, but that's only if they're old enough to sit through it and listen without disturbing. If you aren't sure, and they might disturb others, or minimally disturb you, then it's better just not to bring them. If someone comes a few minutes late to the Megillah, and they missed the brachas, so they should say the three brachas quickly to themselves, all three, can say all three, and then catch up to the Balkaira. And how do you catch up to the Balkaira? You don't have a Megillah, you catch up by using a Chumash. It's okay to read from a Chumash, even a considerable amount, until you catch up, and then hear the rest from the Balkaira reading the Megillah. Now, this is not such a practical, um, this is not such a practical, it's not such a great idea, because the Balkaira tends to read rather quickly. So you would have to be kind of confident that you'll be able to catch up, which is 
might be difficult. So if you know you can, then great, then definitely do that. But if you think you won't be able to catch up, so rather don't say the brachas and just make sure that you hear the whole Megillah or catch up, let's say the one Pasik or whatever it is you missed, catch up to where he is up to to get the whole Megillah. The brachas are not Ma'akev, but hearing the whole Megillah is Ma'akev. So that's of chief importance to make sure you get every word. Likewise, if someone missed a word because of noise, uh, they had to talk, a child, whatever reason, the words that were missed need to be repeated in their proper place in the Megillah, which means you can't listen to the rest of the Megillah and then just fill in that Pasuk you missed. And, excuse me, therefore you should read from a Chumash and try to catch up to the Balkare. It's extremely important not to doze or space out during the Megillah as best as possible. And actually that's the reason why we have these Menhagim of banging Haman and reading out certain Sukkim. Largely, it's in order to keep everybody's attention focused. During the day, when hearing the brachis, one should have in mind that the shehechi yanu that we make on the Megillah is not limited to the Megillah. It also applies to the mitzvahs, which will be done during the day as well, at, which are mishlech manis and matanis At night and in the morning, one should not eat before the Megillah. It's permitted to have a coffee in the morning before the Megillah, but at night it's customary to continue fasting until after hearing the Megillah. However, if it is difficult, which it probably will be because it ends up being kind of late, it is fine to drink and you can eat something, which is shahakal or adama, but just avoid mezainus or, or washing. The bra- there's a bracha after Megillah. The bracha says bracha Hashem and it's Start Harav es Rivenu. That bracha is only said by the Balkare, and it's only said by the Balkare when laning for a minion of men. Otherwise, it's not said, so you don't, you don't say it on your own, and when there's only a woman's Krius uh, Hamagillah, it's not said at all. Matanis Lavyainim. The mitzvah of Matanis Lavyainim is to give a monetary gift to two poor people. There's no clear minimum amount, but it's preferable if it's enough money to buy like an elementary suda, so about five per, per person should suffice. So a total of $10, in other words, $5 to two people is enough to be to, to be to your obligation. I'll give you my time. And both men and women are obligated in this mitzvah as well. There's a question if children are obligated, being that they don't really own money, but if they do and they have bank accounts and certainly once they are uh, you know, after Bas Mitzvah, they should definitely be giving. Uh, you don't have to go and do this mitzvah yourself. Your husband can give money for your sake, and you can give money for your husband's sake, as long as so- someone gave the money to the Aniyam for you, you're yet to the mitzvah. Meister money cannot be used towards Matanas Lavyanim, but after one has satisfied the basic obligation, they've given to two Aniyam the $10 then the rest of the money that you give to poor people can be given from Meister money. This mitzvah can be done through the various organizations that represent poor people. They are your shaluchim. The money can be given before Purim to be distributed on Purim, and that's fine, but it's important to reserve money for the poor people within our own city. The Sudas Purim, the only thing about the Sudas Purim is that it has to begin before Shkia. And ideally, you're supposed to have the majority of the Suda before Shkia, which is not that difficult this year, it's very late, and can then continue into the night. 
And you, although you're benching after it's night, you say alanisim in benching. And the obligation is to wash and to eat fleshigs, to eat something meat. Uh, if you forget alhanisim, whether by benching or by davening, you don't go back. Even if you just finish the bracha, you don't go back. But before you finish the bracha, you can go back. If we examine the story of the Megillah, so there's a clear sequence to events. The first two prakim, the introduction to the story, are there to demonstrate how Hashem created a refua kaidem lamaka. Hashem had already installed the savior of the Jews, Esther, into the palace and had manipulated events so that Mordechai was given the opportunity to save Ahasuerus' life. Those are the first two prakim of the Megillah, and that's the introduction. The introduction is Hashem already had prepared the refuah. He had prepared the redemption. The next two prakim, Paragimel and Paragdalet, tell us how the actual decree occurred with Haman rising to power unnaturally and developing this death wish for Mordechai and by relation all of the Jews in a crazed hatred. And it tells us how Ahasuerus literally bought into the plan wholeheartedly and it was sealed. It then tells us how Mordechai knew about this and understood how dire it was and a conversation between Mordechai and Esther ensues how to approach this problem. That's Perik Dalit. This brings us to Perik Hay, the fifth Perik of the Megillah. This is the turning point of the story. The one act that changes everything occurs here. What act is that? Esther entering Ahasuerus' inner chambers, uninvited, to request him and Haman to come to a Suda. This is where everything starts to turn around. Haman leaving that Suda, leaving that party, sees Mordechai is in so infuriated, a new level of anger, he builds the eight Gavaya, he builds the gallows, which ultimately was the gallows for himself. Ahasuerus wakes up in the middle of the night. Why? Chazal say, because he was trying to figure out why Esther made a party. He was very disturbed. As a result, Mordechai is led by Haman, Haman is hung, and so on. Esther got the ball rolling by coming into Ahasuerus and requesting this party. The truth is, we don't know that much about Esther. This Pasuk that begins the fifth parak of the Megillah, and it was on the third day, and Esther clothed herself in royalty, tells us more about Esther than anything else. Let's understand this passage and what happened. Chazal and Mesechus Megillah say that there were 48 Nevi'im in Klayestral and 7 Nevi'os, only 7 women who were Nevi'os. The Gemara lists all of them and how we know that they were Nevi'im or Nevi'os. One of the 7 women who were Nevi'os, actually the final woman, was Esther. She was a Nevi'os. She was a prophetess. How do we know that she was a Navi? From this passage. On the third day, she clothed herself in royalty. Gemara says, it should have said, in clothing of royalty. Big day, Malchus. What does it mean she clothed herself in royalty? So the Gemara says, it doesn't mean clothing. It means Ruach HaKadosh, which is referred to as Malchus, which is the highest level of Hashem's connection to this world, the Sira of Malchus. She clothed herself in Malchus in the spirit of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. She clothed herself in Ruach HaKadosh. So that means that this moment, which is so pivotal in the Megillah, was also a pivotal moment for Esther, personally, as well. She transformed from being a tzaddikis to a whole nother level 
a very exclusive group of women, only seven historically. She became a Nevi'ah, she became a prophetess. But this begs a number of questions. First, if she was a Nevi'ah, if she was a prophetess, what did she prophesy? The Gemara says that there were in reality many other Nevi'im who weren't counted or recorded. That's because their mission was very specific to the generation they were in and wasn't a lesson for all time. The ones that were counted, including Esther, is because their prophecy was a timeless message. But Esther doesn't seem to prophesy anything. So why is she counted? Secondly, why did she achieve prophecy at this particular juncture in her life? What did she do now that married her to become the final woman prophetess of all time. And it's possible that she was actually the final prophet, period, because the last three men prophets were Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, who had all become prophets previously. So Esther was the, and perhaps the very last person in history to achieve prophecy. What just happened? So I looked around quite a bit to find an answer for these questions, and I didn't find anyone really addressing them directly. But together with some of the things I've seen written on the topic, we might be able to understand this a little. Let's think about what Esther was doing when she went into Ahasuerus. She was putting her life on the line. Now that's certain, because Ahasuerus say, I mean, sorry, Chazal say that Ahasuerus was infuriated that Esther broke his rule and entered uninvited. He wanted her to die. And that would have been the normal, the teva thing to happen. Miraculously, three angels came to stand Esther up, who was fainting from fright and weakness, to make him love her inexplicably and to stretch the scepter to touch her. But she was walking into a death trap. Chazal say the guards were already calling out her clothes, her jewelry, everything she had because she was a goner in their eyes. But here's the truth. Esther would have preferred to die Dying Al-Kiddush Hashem is the inheritance of all Jews. We got it from our forefather Yitzchak, something that Jews have always, unfortunately, and continue to do. Jews will risk their lives to keep Torah to save another Jew, anything. Actually, for Esther, living was a much worse fate because Esther was literally offering herself to Ahasuerus. Until now, she lived with him against her will, forcibly. This way, she retained her identity as a Jewish woman, a Jewish wife. She was married to Mordechai and still retained that relationship, although she was in the palace. Chazal say he visited her constantly. And that's what kept her going in the palace. She could still keep a bit of who she was. But now Chazal say she offered herself to Ahasuerus, which was spiritual suicide. Kasha avadati, avadati. I am now lost. She would have to be divorced from Mordechai. She was cut off from that identity. And she was living with a non-Jew, a Russia, someone who she herself describes as a dog, Kelev. Although she was permitted to do what she did, she nevertheless became Osir, and it's a long halachic discussion why, but that's the way it was. Now more than this, Esther was the paradigm of Tznius. Chazal say that Rachel Imenu was the paradigm of Tznius and was Zeicha to have a grandson, Shaul. Shaul was the paradigm of Tznius, and Chazal explained where, and was Zeicha to have a granddaughter, Esther. So this was a long line, a heritage of Tznius that she represented. But her entering and offering herself to Ahasuerus was the extreme opposite of Tznius, went against her very core, 
her life's work, her perfection, everything who she wanted to be. And even Ahasuerus was surprised at what Esther did. What Esther did in preparation to enter this throne room was to totally demolish herself. She gave up everything about herself, everything she held dear, every ideal that made sense to her in order to save the Jews. She did this all, l'shem shemaim, to serve Hashem. When a person so completely reduces their ani, their sense of self, that there's nothing there except being in Eved Hashem, just doing what it is that Hashem wants, that's when they are capable of becoming a Navi. Nevius, prophecy, is being a vessel through which Hashem can communicate. And the most essential quality is to remove all self and be totally misbatel to Hashem so that the message is pure, connected to Hashem. And that's why specifically now she was Zeicha to Nevoah because she had just done or was willing to do an act of mysterious nefesh, which was unequaled, not because of she was giving up her life, but on the contrary, because she was agreeing to continue living and give up everything that she held spiritually important. So what did she prophesy? The Mepharshim asked, why did she need prophecy at this juncture? Why was it important that she became a prophetess now? And they answer, because there was no way a person could justify doing what Esther did without direct divine inspiration. To put herself in both physical danger and spiritual danger for an unknown outcome, extremely slim chance of success, it wasn't justified. It required a direct communication from Hashem. Her going through with her actions was the prophecy, which is a timeless message. It's a lesson, and perhaps the lesson we learn from Esther, perhaps the lesson we learn from Esther, the lesson is that the ultimate service of Hashem, the highest level one can achieve, is when we put our minds aside. We put our own sense of morals aside and follow the direction of Hashem, what Hashem wants from us, what we know Hashem wants from us. Shaul himself, her great-great-grandfather, Shaul, was tested in this. After this week's parasha, he was commanded to kill Amalek by Shmuel, direct commandment from Hashem. And it says, the night before he waged war, by Yorev Ban Nochal. He fought in the valley, but he didn't start the war yet. So what does it mean he fought in the valley? Chazal say he was warring with himself. He was struggling with his command to kill Amalek. Why? Because he was commanded to kill the men. Fine, no problem. He understood that. Understand, uh, he was commanded to kill the women. Good, he was able to accept that. They caused people to sin. But then the children, he couldn't understand. Why should I kill the children? The animals, why should I kill the behemoths? What kind of Tzar and Baltashkas that is? He struggled with it, and ultimately he failed. His own sense of morals caused him to make a mistake, and he didn't fulfill the commandment of Hashem totally, and as a result lost his, his reign. He, he lost the, king, the kingdom at that point. And Esther was doing the exact opposite, and she was being misakane, this sin. She was totally, totally reducing herself, putting her own morals aside, putting her own sense of ideals aside, and just doing what she knew Hashem commanded. And that's a big deal. And that's a big deal. And it's something that 
it seems perhaps obvious that what do you mean if we get a commandment from Hashem, of course we would keep it and we wouldn't struggle with it, but that's not really true. We struggle all the time with things that if we objectively think about it, if we were to ask someone else, they would say, what do you mean? Of course this is what you have to do. But we nevertheless struggle with it. And sometimes we struggle because we don't want to. Sometimes we struggle because we think that's not really the right thing to do. And the ability to totally put ourselves aside selflessly, the highest level of selflessness to just serve Hashem, do what He wants, all for the purpose of saving other Jews, saving another Jew, is the highest level a person can achieve. And that's what Esther achieved at this moment, which became a pivotal moment in the Megillah, and a pivotal moment in her own life, that she achieved Nevoah, she achieved prophecy. Have a good Shabbos, and a, that next, next week is Purim, so there won't be any conference call, so a frail to everybody.